So nice to be here. I'm Emily Botin. I'm Paula Schumann. And we're going to talk to you today about some of the experiments we've done at WNYC to build community through audio. To do so, we're going to play you a lot of short bits of tape. I got my start at National Public Radio, and one of the things I remember from when I worked at NPR was the letter segments on the daily news shows when we got listeners, let letters from listeners. In my mind, whenever we had a hole in the show, we would say, let's pull out some listener letters and read from them. Here's an example of a letter segment from Morning Edition many, many years ago. Time now for your comments. This is probably one of the most charming corrections we've received. Three alert listeners and TV watchers told us there was a small mistake in our obituary of talk show host Johnny Carson. We played a clip of... The listener is charming, says host Renee Montaigne, and the letter is a correction. And that's all it is. It's the extent of the interaction. The host reads the letter. And actually, on our home station, WNYC in New York, listener letters were read even earlier. Here's Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. He was mayor from, for three terms from 1932 through 1945, and he used to read letters from listeners on the air as well. Here's one from 1945. Here I have a very interesting letter, uh, apparently written by a small boy. It says, Dear Mayor, I took a light out of one of your city parks, enclosed this cost, 18 cents instead. Signed, City Ruffian. <laughs> so I come from a print background where our approach to readers wasn't much different. Besides publishing letters to the editor out of obligation and habit, we saw our jobs as primarily outward facing. We were the proxy for the readers, informing them and talking at them. So when I got to radio, it felt pretty familiar in this regard. Letters from listeners, often grouchy listeners. This is one that we dug up from the archives that I particularly love. Dated October 4th, 1993. This person has a real issue with the way we report the time. Why do you report time by so many minutes past the hour? What hour? What kind of clocks do you have in that place? Even a sundial shows hours. That's how I imagine I'm talking. As I go about my chores, even when I first awaken, I want to know from WNYC exactly what time it is. Please, the hour. These days, things are different. We still have grouchy listeners and wonderful listeners. But after we launched WNYC Studios, a whole new generation of hosts... Uh, WNYC Studios is our podcast division of the radio station. So we had a whole new generation of hosts who really wanted to start reaching out to listeners and forming more of a connection. So we started asking people to get involved, to tell us their stories. And pretty soon, their stories became part of our stories. And along the way, we've learned a lot of things, but we've boiled them down to six. So we're going to share the six things we've learned over the next little while. Number one, listeners take us places we didn't know we could go. In 2014, WMYC launched Death, Sex, and Money. We describe the show as a place where we talk about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I know our host, Anna Sale, has been here before at Radio Days, and maybe some of you heard her here. So Anna wanted to interact with listeners, and that was a big 
goal of us from the goal for us from the start. Before we've had listener comment lines at our station where people could leave a phone message. This time we just asked people to use their smartphones, record a voicemail, and email it to us. We would ask people a specific question, and people started answering right away. Anna comes from a family of five siblings. That's Anna second in. We decided that we were going to do an episode exploring sibling relationships. Our question was, how have your sibling relationships changed as you've grown up? And here's an excerpt of a voicemail we got, which is attached to an email, subject line, adult siblings. This is a voicemail about dealing with mental illness. My sister is six years older than me, so from sixth grade to twelfth grade, it was almost like being an only child, and she was the cousin I was really close with. And as I entered into college and adulthood, we became even closer, um, and she was someone I really looked up to. But when she moved across country to attend grad school, things started to change significantly. We don't know where she is or what she's doing now, and we haven't known for more than a year. Uh, we just hope that she's alive and somewhere safe. I, I would say it's like she was dead, but to be honest, I think the closure of death would be easier in a lot of ways. People were brutally honest with us from the start in their voicemails. In response to that same call out about siblings, we heard from a woman named Alex. She recorded a voicemail in her car. I was born three months premature, and I have a twin sister who's a quadriplegic. So Alex's situation is unusual, for sure. She's twins. One of them is quadriplegic, one not. But it got considerably more complicated and more interesting when Anna got on the phone with Katie, who is Alex's sister. You can hear in Katie's voice, uh, it's a little hard to hear, she has cerebral palsy. We've never really been close. I think we both have had resentment in regard to my disability, but as we've gotten older, it's gotten easier to deal with. Why do you think it's gotten easier? Because I realize it's not our fault. For me, it was the siblinghood episode that kind of totally changed my opinion about listeners and what we could do with them and what they could do with us. I started realizing that the stories they were telling us and the conversations that they were forcing us to have were much more interesting than the content we had set out to make. The other thing is when I listen to that audio, I'll just say it reminds me of something else. Uh, with listener content, you clearly can't always control the audio quality. I can't ask them you know, what kind of brand of microphones they're using. And I think while there is a place for those questions, and I certainly have asked that plenty of times, working with listeners is also just a reminder of the pleasure and sort of how much I love phone tape and, in general, crappy quality audio. The voicemails, you know, you have to clean them up and all that stuff. But both phones and voicemails, they create an immediate intimacy that I don't always think we get from our clean studio tape. So fast forward a couple years. Uh, we did a series on the student loan crisis in the U.S., and it is a huge deal in the United States. Four-year colleges can cost upwards of $200,000. This doesn't include graduate school. A lot of people take out loans, loans they later spend years, even decades paying off. Uh, when we started this project, it wasn't long. We knew we had hit on something big. Over 20,000 people participated in the project, and here's one of them, Leo. I have... $87,000 in student loans. And that's not something that I tell a lot of people. Um, and 
Honestly, it's kind of a shock even to me to even think of that number is tied to me. Um, I believe it's $14 a day in interest that I accrue on my loans. So every day costs me $14. Um, and that's, that's pretty shocking. Um, but it's not only a financial stressor, it's, I, it's a shame piece for me. And it makes almost, I guess, a little bit of a, I don't feel legitimate. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know that I'm in this severe debt. Um, and if you looked at my life, there's an illusion that um, financially I'm fine um, and that I don't have this burden. But the reality is I do, and it sucks. Leo's loan wasn't even as big as they come. My colleague, producer Katie Bishop, who's always thinking of our newsletter and our website, she asked listeners to contribute visuals to us. So not only are they sending us voicemails, now they're sending us images. Uh, this woman is paying off more than $500,000 in medical school debt. This person has $315,000 in debt. And then there's another one, 158000 And to accompany her image, this listener wrote in, usually cross-stitching is pretty therapeutic and meditative for me, but I will admit my anxiety was at an all-time high while completing this mini-project. It's America. Okay, so uh, number two. Remember we said we were going to have six. Number two, listeners speak to us but also to each other, finding new friends and new communities. So by this point, we'd opened the door, people had piled in, it was clear people had a lot to say and they wanted to say it. We were in conversation with them, we were, they were hearing their voices reflected in our work and it felt like a first step. So the next was starting to experiment with bringing listeners together, facilitating conversations between them. One of our podcasts is called Nancy. It's an LGBTQ show, a queer show about identity, figuring out who you are, and the journey it takes to get there. We like to say it's like This American Life, only gayer. <laughs> our hosts are Kathy Chu and Tobin Lowe, and I think they were here last year. Maybe some of you were here and heard them at Radio Days. So Tobin had been talking about you know, his desire to find adult friendships, especially queer friends. And initially, we started talking about doing a piece about his search for what he called a gaggle. So a gaggle of close-knit friends who talk to each other all the time and text each other, tell each other everything. But we thought, wouldn't a lot of people want this also? So we decided to blow it up. Our gaggle episode comprised, our gaggle series comprised two episodes. In the first one, Tobin helps a guy named Joe find a gaggle, and we explore the nature of adult friendships and gay friendships in general. And with that episode, we kicked off a challenge to listeners to find their own gaggles. The dictionary defines gaggle. No, 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 no. The dictionary defines gaggle as a group of geese, which is not helpful for our purposes. It also defines gaggle as a disorderly or noisy group of people, which is sort of helpful for our purposes. What I think of when I hear the word gaggle is a group of queer friends. our social feeds to spread the word. And you'll see throughout this talk that there are lots of things we do 
to help spread the word off audio platforms and bring people back. And this is one example, and the Leo video was another example. So we made this animation, we put it across social, uh, we got a lot of press pickup. This is an article in Billboard magazine, and that also helped spread the word about the listener challenge. And the listener challenge is what our follow-up episode focused on. So Ben. Kathy. It has been six weeks since we launched our How to Get a Gaggle project, where we gave our listeners weekly challenges to help them make new friends. And the reaction to it has completely blown our minds. Agree? Yes. Mind blown. Over 3,000 people signed up. Kathy, what were the challenges we gave them? Week one, reach out to someone. Mm -hmm. Week two, go on a friend date. Uh Week three, go to a queer event. Getting scarier. Uh Week four, host a brunch. Brunch. It worked. (laughs) 3,000 people signed up for the four-week challenge to get their own gaggles. So this is a post on our Friends of Nancy Facebook page. It's a closed Facebook group with 15,000, at the moment, 15,000 Nancy listeners. And thanks to the gaggle project, a woman named Ari posted this in the group, showing her new gaggle and everybody having brunch. As far away as Germany, it says Berlin Gaggle Unite. They were starting gaggles. Then a few weeks ago, Nancy uh, launched another project. This one was called Queer Money Matters. We produced five episodes over five days, all about how to navigate the economy if you're queer. Our thesis was that the economy is designed for straight people. So each episode was divided in half. The first half was someone facing a financial issue, someone who was looking to get married or have kids or save for retirement or had high health care costs. Um, and in the second half was all listeners. Hi, I'm Kay. I'm a mother who lives with my queer spouse. My name is Jason Becton. Me and my husband, Patrick Evans, own Murray Beck Cafe and Bakery in Charlottesville, Virginia. The business is named after our daughters, Marion and Betty. My name is Jesse Pere. I live in Chicago, Illinois with my wife, Connie, and our daughter, Nola, who is two years old. So these are the listeners who gave the advice in our episode about family planning. These are all people who, uh, queer couples who managed to have children, talking about the different ways they did it, and you know, giving advice to the people who were listening. So again, what happened with this? People managed to find each other and make connections. This is another post from our Friends of Nancy Facebook group that we found after, I think it was the fourth episode of the series about healthcare costs. And... The main focus was on the pressures that trans people face getting and affording transition surgeries. Insurance often doesn't cover it. A lot of people don't even have insurance to begin with. So this message came in. Hey, friends of Nancy family. My wife and I wanted to put out an offer to any trans folks who need a place to stay while undergoing transition surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital. We have a spare bedroom and I'm a good cook. Please DM me if you have any interest, an interest of any questions. Love to all. So back to our list for you to take away. Number three, listeners sometimes make entire episodes for us. <laughs> That's right. At this point, we've got them so well-trained, they do our work. Our newest show is called 10 Things That Scare Me. It's also one of our weirdest. Episodes are about five minutes long. They're non-narrated and without a host. It's one person talking through his or her her deepest fears. The episodes are short, but the producers take a long time. They spend over an hour with each guest, pulling out the best stories. I'm going to play you a little. Uh, Here's an example from Jamaican writer Marlon James. He's talking about the first of his fears. Number one, lizards. (laughs) 
All Jamaicans are terrified of lizards. I don't know if we're terrified. Actually, yeah, we're terrified. I was going to say we're not terrified. We're just easily startled. But there are certain breeds of lizards where if they're in that house, everybody in that family sleeps on the street. So in the full episode, Marlon goes on to explain his remaining nine fears. This show, it's only been out a little over three months. It's really struck a chord. We call it an experiment in empathy. Listeners tell us they feel less alone when they hear other people sharing their same fears, no matter how different they may seem on the outside. And from the start, we've ended each 10 Things episodes with a call out for listeners to send us their own fears. We've put all these fears into a random fear generator, and you can click through and see every fear submitted. We have over 4,000 fears. (laughs) And the most amazing thing is that we've also gotten perfectly formatted audio submissions from the listeners who hear what we do and then copy it. We barely edit them. We add some scoring, not much. But we have new episodes straight from the listeners that we are now putting back into our feed. We're going to play you a sample. Heads up, some of these are kind of intense. (laughs) The show is kind of intense. (laughs) Number one, parasites. Kind of random, but my dad was killed by one after a kidney transplant. Stays with you, something like that. Number two, parasite extinction. If they go out, it's a sign that something worse is along the way. Number three, number five, being brainwashed by a cult leader. Because you hear about cults and you watch all these documentaries and stuff, you always think the people are so stupid and vulnerable. But like, what if I am that stupid and vulnerable? Number nine, mononucleosis. Number ten would be being cheated on. My name is Luke Bruner. My name is John Platt. My name is Kim, and these are ten things that scare me. So the fourth thing that we've learned is that it's really important to engage with listeners on all platforms, not just audio, something I mentioned before. And in fact, the slide previous was uh, a tweet that I think it was listener Luke or John posted sharing his episode with his um, with his followers. So we want people to listen, but sometimes we have to find them in places where they're watching or surfing or hanging out. So the 10 Things That Scare Me team, for example, uh, went to a podcasting conference in Seattle called PodCon. This is a wall at PodCon filled with lists of fears. There are many more than this. This is just a small sample. Uh, We set up a table there for people to record their own fears. I think we got like 90 submissions. Um, We also did an event at the French Institute's annual Night of Philosophy at the Brooklyn Public Library where we workshopped, cast, and put on a live show at midnight to a packed house. So listeners who had never met each other before came together, wrote down their fears, and we selected the ones that were going to read them on stage. They uh, wrote them, and then they got on stage and read a paragraph about their deepest, darkest fears in front of all these people. Here's Emily helping (laughs) two of them to rehearse. And this was something we did at South by Southwest last year in Austin, Texas. It was the Nancy team again. They hosted something called a Wikipedia edit-a-thon. I don't know how many people people here know what that is, but don't worry, I didn't either. So briefly, you know how Wikipedia is an open-source site that can be edited by anyone? Well, the problem is that anyone turns out to be mostly straight white men, which which means the people deciding 
what's important enough to warrant a Wikipedia article and what, gets, what history gets told are limited to those voices. So Nancy is very much dedicated to inclusivity. Um, a gaggle of listeners and Kathy and Tobin met up in person to queer the internet by editing Wikipedia entries and adding new ones. Here's a group of them at the end of the day. By the end, they'd made 704 edits. They had written 48 new articles, and they had added 31,000 words to the site. And the whole event was broadcast live on Facebook. It's certainly not something you would imagine coming out of an audio podcast. Not all of our engagement projects are in person or even particularly high tech. At Death, Sex, and Money, we've done, done a bunch of shared Google Docs, just the things we all use at the office. Uh, you know, when you click Anyone Can Edit in the Preferences section, that anyone became our listeners around the world who input various comments in response to the questions we asked them. We asked people what was their favorite documentary. Uh, Charlotte says Vernon, Florida. James says Word Wars. We asked listeners what they like to do on solo dates when they're alone. Rebecca says she likes taking a speaker, a coffee, and a skateboard to my favorite mini ramp on a Saturday and skate while the sun rises. Probably our most popular Google Doc was a breakup survival kit for those moments at the end of a relationship. This one had like hundreds of submissions. Jessica says she holds living room dance parties. Heidi says she buys shoes. What was crazy about this, one of our listeners, a woman named Emily Theus, actually took the data off the Google Doc and made it into a professional website. So listeners are taking our content, which is in part their content, and making something of their own with it. So speaking of people, number five... Uh, is, of course, listeners are people, so they do come with their own set of problems. And we've hit some roads, some bumps on the road that we'll tell you about. People have gotten really personal with us. And much of this leads to surprising content that takes us places where we didn't expect to go, which I said, amazing content. But listeners also come to us sometimes when they should be going to someone else. Uh, here's some of what we heard in a voicemail that came with the subject line, validation, please. Hello. So, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to do a voice memo because recently I've been going through um, an intense bout with uh, depression and anxiety today. I wasn't able to do anything much. Like, I couldn't really leave my bed. And so I'm in the kitchen and... I turned on the oven. I'm just so our producers need to have real sensitivity when someone needs real help. We have a list of mental health resources available. Uh, we've even called 911 in a couple uh, cases to try to track someone down. Once you open the door to listeners, it's not all just fun and games. You have a responsibility to check your inbox regularly. If staff go on vacation, someone still looks at the inbox. Uh, you have to be clear with listeners about what you might do with what uh, they are sending you. Anytime someone sends us something, we send them a bounce-back message saying we might use this. And we also say pretty clearly, let us know if you don't want us to. Often we change their names. We don't say where they're from. Sometimes even we disguise their voice. Of course, when we do all this, we let the listener, uh, the audience, know that we've done this. This may seem obvious, it's journalism, but it's just important to remember that once listeners become content, you need to treat them seriously. And finally, the awkward part. 
We come from America, after all, and everything costs money. <laughs> and public radio is used to doing pledge weeks. Here, a group of volunteers in 1975 asked answering phones at our station, which is it's a, like an on-air pledge drive where radio hosts ask listeners for money. And this happens a couple times a year. And this has happened forever on public radio. Now we're being told to do the same in podcasts. And no surprise, it isn't easy. We spent all this time getting the trust of our listeners to share their most personal stories. And now we have to ask them for money? So we've tried to do it in a variety of ways. These are my colleagues, Katie and Annabelle, from the Death, Sex, and Money team. And here is them warning, warming up the listeners. Hey, it's Katie Bishop. And Annabelle Bacon. We're the producers of Death, Sex, and Money. And we hear from you a lot. Hello. Hi, Anna. Hi, Death, Sex, and Money. Hi there. Hello, Anna and team. We love getting your emails and voice memos. Every time we open the Death, Sex, and Money inbox, we wonder what we're going to find there. I wanted to tell you a story. It's been a tough two years. I hesitate to tell you my real name because I have so much shame. Oh, man. It's pretty big for me. I don't really know where else to take this. It may not be big for a lot of other people. But I thought you should know. The idea behind Death, Sex, and Money has always been that hearing people talk about the things that are hard to talk about helps all of us feel less alone. That's how we feel when we work on episodes of Death, Sex, and Money. And if you agree, we've got a favor to ask. Yes, we are asking you for money, but as always, it's really important. Budgets aren't sexy, but they're what keep the show going. And this year, we're celebrating something big. Death, Sex, and Money. Here's a slightly different approach Kathy and Tobin took recently. We're committed to bringing you as many stories as possible about queer life. In order to tell those stories, we travel ourselves, and we also commission stories from reporters from across the country and the world. That takes money, lots of money. A month of Nancy can cost upwards of $75,000 to produce, and that's before things like travel and paying our outside contributors. Take a series like... So the idea was that maybe being concrete and specific about what the costs are and how we need the listeners to help us would work. I think we're both kind of on the fence about whether any of these work completely, how they work tonally, um, how we balance the, the quality of the show with the real financial needs of the show. And to our ears, a lot of these membership asks sound very long. So our newest podcast, we went uh, very direct. Every Friday this month, we're bringing you special listener episodes made up of fears submitted by you. Because 10 Things That Scare Me is about the fears that unite all of us. But to make any of this happen, we need more than just your fears. We need your money. <laughs> That's our 10 Things That Scare Me producer, Amy Pearl. So over the couple of, past couple of years that we've been you know, playing with these asks, we have seen results and it feels very rewarding. Here is a tweet from someone that says, At 10 Things Pod is my favorite new podcast I've listened to in 2019. It's uncomfortable and weird and creative and great. So I did the hashtag public radio thing and chipped in to keep it going. Here's a comment that we got from a Nancy listener, Kaylin from Portland, Oregon, who gave for the first time. I love the podcast. I am a straight, cisgendered, white female and just want to add my support to a podcast that means a lot to me and even more to the queer people in my life. Keep it coming. Now, we know asking for money might not be something that a lot of people in this room have to deal with, but for us, it's built into our workload. And you know what? We're not alone. 
Because as the media landscape in the U.S. has come under so much economic pressure, as advertising dollars have become more fickle and politics more polarized, more media outlets are taking a page from us. They're asking their audience, readers and listeners, to become members. They just can't rely on the old models anymore. And so they're realizing that the most promising revenue model is what's been in front of them all along, their audience. 